0: i pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay. So yeah, last time, I started talking about the design of the very first expansion, Arabian Nights. But I only got through B in my cards, to Bird Maiden, so I'm going to continue. Um, there's 78 cards. I'm going to try to talk about all 78 cards because there's not that many cards. Um, also, by the way, every day I record my podcast on the way to work and the way home I listen to it. Uh, and I liked last podcast, but I made one mistake, and so I didn't, it wasn't a big enough mistake to re-record it, but I do want to correct myself. Um, I said last time that the first set I worked on was Antiquities, what I meant was, the first set I worked on was Alliances. Alliances, that's the first set I worked on. Um, I did not work on Antiquities. Uh, antiquities was before my time. One of my favorite sets, in fact, my favorite set before I got to Wizards, and one of these days I'll talk all about antiquities, because that's an awesome set. But today, we're talking about Arabian Nights. So I left off in B after Bird Maiden, which is Bottle of Suleiman. So Bottle of Suleiman is, um, one of the things that they love in uh, A Thousand Arabian Nights is gins. In fact, gins and frites were a, a theme in the set. We'll get to some of those soon. Um, but the first gin actually shows up as an artifact creature. So what happens is, um, it, this artifact costs four, and then I think it's five, you spend five mana, and you um, flip a coin, and then I, no, it's a, te- hold on a second, is it a, what, do you, what do you do, how much mana do you spend, I'm not sure how much you spend on this, um, but the point is, you spend some mana, you flip a coin, and then one of two things happens. If you win the coin, you get a five, five gin artifact creature, um, a token, and if you lose, it does five damage to you. So this was this set has the very first coin flipping in it. Coin flipping did not exist in Magic. Um, and there's a few coin flipping cards in this set, but this is one of them. Um, this card is interesting in that it was very exciting when it first came out, just because the, the upside potential is so good. The problem is the downside is so bad that it really is a super swinging card. Because having a 5-5 five, five flyer will win you the game, and taking five damage will make you most often lose the game. So... You know, And plus, spending all the mana and not getting a 5-5 flyer and instead getting damaged it just was very harsh. Um, this is not the first card to make artifact creatures or make token creatures. Um, the Hive from Alpha actually did that. But this was um, one of the earlier ones. Artifact creatures... Uh, Hive was a very popular early card. And um, the uh, this Foul Suit... This was also... A, for as swinging a swing card as it was, it was very popular. People definitely had fun with his card, um, and it was definitely a a casual fan favorite it never it was a particularly strong card um, but anyway it was uh it was much beloved just because it was it, it was super flavorful like I had the bottle while I get the gin out of it okay next brass man so brass man costs one man that's an artifact creature for a one three and brass man does not untap his normal unless you pay one to untap him because he's rusty um, and the idea of the brass man is that he has some upkeep to require you to untap him so it turns out Brass Man actually did see Constructed play there was a period in time where um, what we call the Pump Knights from Fallen Empires which were these 2-1 creatures that had uh, activated First Strike um, and it turns out that um, as a, a good early defense against stuff like that uh, the Brass Man in certain decks ended up being a good early defense um, and so uh, it saw some tournament play Anyway, uh, Brass Man is, is actually a story. All this stuff ties to different stories. I don't know the story of the Brass Man, but I do know it's, it's connected. There's a story about it. A lot of these come directly from stories. I don't know A Thousand More Raven Nights well enough to know all the stories, but I do know it comes from a story. Next is Camel. A zero one one for 1 white. It has bands. And all creatures attacking in a band with Camel are immune to damage done by deserts. So we haven't got to desert yet. We'll get to that soon. But desert was a land that's capable of doing damage. So uh, camel first let you band, and it protected you from deserts. Um, a little narrow. The flavor was good. Uh, the set is just. The set has lots and lots and lots of awesome flavor. Sometimes mechanically it's relevant. Sometimes it's less so. Um, having a 0-1 bander is very good on defense, but not particularly strong on attacking. And deserts are only work when you're attacking. So. The funny thing is, I saw Campbell's play, and they were used defensively. They weren't used nearly as much offensively, um, partly because deserts weren't as big a play, and partly because just a 0-1 bander on, on offense is not particularly that good. Next, City in a Bottle uh, costs two mana, and while it's in play, all cards from Arabian Knights um, are destroyed, except for City in a Bottle, and no cards can be played. So what this card, what Richard, this is the first of its kind, what we call a set hoser, where Richard said, well, I'm going to make some cards, but just in case um, you don't like this set or you can't, I don't know, for whatever reason, this card trumps the set. If you play this card, you can't play any cards from this set. This card, by the way, um, I I talked about how um, the entire expansion was inspired by um, a a comic, a Fifty. Uh, this card in particular was specifically, uh, cause in, in the story there's a city in a bottle anyway. Th- th- this, card was specifically inspired by that comic. Um, so the, the idea of a set hoser, uh, early sets would have one. Um, there was one in Arabian Nights, there was one in Antiquities, there was one in Homelands. Um, quickly decided that just really wasn't, uh, uh, play-wise wasn't the best thing, um, this card also did some quirky things. One of the funniest things was it destroyed anything for a while that had the expansion symbol on it. So if you played a normal mountain, you were fine. But if you played a mountain that had the expansion symbol on it, you weren't. Um, we later changed the rules to say that all cards are tra- all cards with the same name are treated equally. So there's certain aspects like expansion symbol that no longer are tracked uh, in Blackboard Magic. Civil War Magic will track it. Um, in Silver Border Magic each card cares about what it itself does so you can go after individual things you can care about the artist or the expansion symbol or, or the name or all sorts of things that Black Border has trouble with um, this card was errata relatively re- recently the way they finally solved the card since it can't look at like an expansion symbol is it named every card uniquely in the set so it didn't name mountain so if you have an Arabian Nights mountain now you play City of Brass it does not destroy an Arabian Nights mountain um, but it in the errata, it names every card in the set. And so it does effectively do what it did before, minus the sense that it doesn't affect the, uh, it does not affect the mountain. Next City of Brass. So City of Brass is a land. You can tap to add one mana of any color you your mana pool, and then you suffer one damage whenever it becomes tapped. So City of Brass uh, uh, turned it a stable for a long time. It's a very popular card. Um, it's just very powerful. It allowed you access to other colors, I mean it did it at a cost but it was very efficient. And it, it, this was one of those cards that uh, saw a lot of uh, reprints and, and play after the, it came out. Um, in fact, in and in Unhinged, um, in the donkey-themed set, uh, there was a parody of this card called City of Ass, for, as in donkey. Um, and there was a fun parody uh, uh, anyway, of it. Um, you also have City of Brass. It's definitely one of those cards, I think if you talk about the cards from Arabian Nights that have had the most influence uh, as far as just showing off and meaning something, City Brass has, has seen a lot of play. Kumbaj Witches. So Kumbaj Witches is a one-three witch for black-black. Um, so you can tap it to do one damage to any target, but opponent may also do one damage to any target, uh, and you choose your your target first. Um, so this we're in early Magic. Uh, the, we're definitely trying to figure out where where mechanics go exactly. Um, this does something that nowadays would be more red. Um, black, black does do a little bit of damage, but usually when it's related to drain, uh, when it's on on players, it's loss of life. It will do, like, minus one, minus one, and stuff like that. So, it has a lot of similar areas, but just to try to clean up and make it crystal clear what's black and what's red. Most direct damage, barring draining, is in red. Next, Cyclone, two green-green. Um... It's an enchantment. You put a, a cyclone counter, or it says, it, says, it says on the card you put a chip on it. I think it's been retroactively changed to a wind counter, I think. Um, and then you have to pay one green for each counter on it or discard it. So this is the first card with Cumulative Upkeep. So Cumulative Upkeep, by name, doesn't actually show up until uh, Ice Age. But this card, for all intents and purposes, um, functions a lot like Cumulative Upkeep. Um one could argue that stasis from alpha also is cumulative up alike and that it grows over time. Um it's a little bit different cuz as you tap mana it doesn't unlock though. So it's not quite the same, but if you play a stasis and do nothing but pay for the stasis, it's similar. Um but cyclone is directly you pay green, then you pay green green, then you pay green green, green. So it has a essentially has a cumulative upkeep of one green mana. Um Oh, by, by the way, so what does it do? Uh Cyclone does one damage per chip uh, or per counter to each player uh, and each creature. So Cyclone is another example of a card that's not really in green anymore. Um, green early Magic green did a lot more damage to things, and we we realized that we like green doing a little bit of damage to players and stuff, but that we wanted green th- th- green would deal with creatures with its own creatures. So, this is a little more destructive than we... uh, The current green pie does not just do damage to creatures like this. Okay, next. Dancing Scimitar. So, for four mana, you get a 1-5 Flying Artifact Creature. So, notice, by the way, back in the day, um, uh, up until, I think, 6th edition, creatures said Summon blank. Um, If you were an Artifact, though you would just be an artifact creature. That was enough to limit what, what you are. Because in other under artifacts, you could be a mono artifact, a poly artifact, a continuous artifact, or an artifact creature. Um, so the artifact creatures are the only the only creatures in the game when the game first started that said creature on its type line. little trivia there. Um, although, uh, or as it went on creatures, would say enchant creatures. So actually, there were other card type lights that said creature and them and they weren't even creatures. Um, but what I was going to say is because of that, there... There was no creature types on artifact creatures originally. Um, so Dancing Scimitar at the time was just an artifact creature. It wasn't, there's was no... Um, so we, have, we went back in the great uh, creature type update and gave some of the ones that were obvious creature types. But there are definitely some artifact creatures that even now in Oracle... I, th- well, I think maybe we gave them all artifact creature types. Um, but it's something we didn't do in, ear- in early days. Okay. Oh, and, uh, what could say? So, Dancing Scimitar is another card that, uh, proved to be... Uh, I know there's... it's a little bit of play in tournaments because, um, 1-5 is a pretty good body, and, and there were decks that needed to play stuff like that because an artifact were able to play it. Um, wasn't nearly as good as Brathman, uh, which saw more play, but, um, I do know there's... A, I remember seeing a little tiny bit of play with Dancing Scimitar. Um, also, another thing to remember is, um... Right now, in Magic, uh, limited play is a huge part of Magic. Um, when Magic first began, limited really wasn't play. I mean, there was some sealed deck play, but there wasn't a lot of limited play, and especially there wasn't draft yet. Draft was something that um, Wizards was aware of. I mean, um, I know Bill Rose and some of the other play testers were drafting before the set even came out. Um, but it wasn't something we introduced really really until the Pro Tour happened, and we really started being aggressive about introducing it. Uh, And I think it was the Pro Tour that really started bringing draft as a mainstay for people to start thinking about. Um, Okay, so let's get on to Dan Dan. So Dan Dan, blue in a blue, it is... What is this creature? One one of my problems is I... I, uh, I sometimes cannot read my own writing... Okay, Dandan is a four-one, uh, and it can't attack or block. Or sorry, can't attack unless the opponent has islands in play. Has what we call island home or half island home. Oh no, it has island home. So what island home is? It just says that you must have islands or it is destroyed, and you can't attack unless the opponent has islands. So the flavor of um, the flavor of this card of island home is it lives in the ocean. So if you don't have water, well, it it'll die. And if your opponent doesn't have water, it can't get to them. Um, But blue-blue for 4-1 is pretty aggressive, so if you're, you're playing blue and they're playing blue. Now the sneaky thing for blue is blue has the ability to change, especially early on, to change the land type of the opponent from whatever they had into an island. So one of the tricks with some of the island home creatures is you're playing blue and then you turn one of your opponent's things into blue and then you can attack. So Dandan, by the way, so the picture of Dandan shows two boats and then underneath the water is this giant fish. But one of the things about the picture is the focus of the picture, um, Drew Tucker drew it. Uh, the boats just really grab your attention just because it's the water's dark and the fish is kind of dark. So a lot of people, I'm, and I'm not kidding about this, thought Dan Dan was a boat. And I'm like, no, but Dan Dan is the thing under the water, not the boat. Um, but I, I know people who for years thought like Dan Dan was a boat. I attack you with my boat. But it is not. And if you didn't know that now, see, see people listen to my podcast, you can learn things. Okay, next we get to desert. So desert was the land. So desert was the most commonly open card, because it was a C11, meaning it was 11 times on the common sheet, versus, uh, most of them were like 5. So it was, uh, almost twice as common as, uh, a lot of the other comments. So you could tap to add a colorless, um, or you could tap to do 1 damage to an attacking creature. Uh, uh, after it deals damage. So it, it doesn't kill the creature. It deals damage to a creature, but not before it deals the damage. So it doesn't kill the creature. It doesn't stop the damage. So if you attack with a dandan, Dan, let's say, a 4-1, uh, you would take four damage, but then you'd use the desert to kill. Now, I'm not sure why the sandstorm kills the creature that must be in the water, but it does. Um, so desert, you can have up to four deserts, obviously, and so desert proved to be pretty potent in that if you have four deserts in play, the ability to do four damage to every attacking creature really would make it hard to get through. Um, I mean, obviously you got your camel and things like that, but uh, it, it turned out to be... The only reason that I think deserts weren't as powerful as maybe they could be was it was so horrible early in Magic to play creatures that a lot of the early Magic decks didn't have a lot of creatures in competitive play. Um, it would get worse. It wasn't quite as bad. Um, during um, Arabian Nights, there were... You did see Jews, Abjins, and Jins, and Ifbififreets and things. There, or Serendipifreets. I mean, there were... Um, there were cards creatures played. It would get worse during Legends. Legends actually had some cards that... Uh, Abyss and things that just made it so brutal to playing creatures that for a while, creatures went away. Okay, next. Desert Nomads. Speaking of... Uh, so they have Desert Walk. Uh, and they're immune to damage done by desert. So Desert Nomads are... Um, two and a red for a 2-2, and the idea essentially was if your opponent had a desert, they both couldn't be harmed by the desert and couldn't be stopped by the desert. Um, yeah, there were a couple. The de- desert, I think there were three cards that cared about deserts. There's the Camel, there's a the Desert Nomad, and there's uh, uh, one, more, one more coming. Okay, speaking of deserts, Desert Twifter. So for uh, four green and green, for six mana, destroy any card in play. Um... This was the Bane. I, for a long time, this was my least favorite card in the game. Um, so what happened was, when I first got there, we were working on making 5th edition. And at the time, green, early green, um, and you go to stuff like Arabian Nights, green is just killing creatures left and right. It's got Cyclones, got Drapahani, it's got Desert Twifter... And eventually we sort of said, look, we need to have the colors have vulnerabilities. And look, green, green is creatures. It's the creature color. But let green deal with the other creatures with its creatures. You know, the reason that green, green shouldn't just be killing things from afar. Green should be attacking with its creatures. And, you know, the green got the most, one of the things that green gets over the other colors is, is it gets more, its creatures are bigger for less. And And part of the reason for that is it has a creature advantage, but it had to have a disadvantage. Disadvantage is, well, it needs to use its creatures to deal with other creatures. So, anyway, we were doing a fifth edition, and we had a real trouble coming up with green cards that made sense. And so they wanted to put Desert Twifter in. And I said, okay, no, guys, green doesn't do that anymore. That's out of flavor. We should not be making this card. And um, they're like, no, we don't have a lot of other good choices. Here's what we'll make it the following promise to you we'll put it in, but it won't be a precedent. So we won't use this card to dictate doing other things. We understand that Green's not supposed to do this, but just for this one set, we'll put it in. I naively said, okay. And then it was a precedent from then on. Then I was fighting for years and years and years. You know, they're like, but we put in Desert Twister. I'm like, you said it wouldn't be a precedent. Anyway, uh, the lesson I learned from Desert Twifter is it's a slippery slope that when you let one card, when you just make one exception once, that it just becomes, uh, wow, we did, it, we did it this one time. We can do it again. And then you're fighting a uh, lesson of, of magic development. It's a slippery slope. Okay. Next is Diamond Valley. It is a land. Uh, you tap and sacrifice one of your creatures, and you get life equal to the toughness of that creature. Uh, this does not tap for any mana, so it breaks the current rules of, of um, lands. But it was a powerful land. It could get you a lot of life. I actually had a whole... I had a lot of Diamond Valleys in my deck. I, I like Diamond Valley. Um, it was actually a very good means... Uh, to stay alive in, in a creature-based deck that you could sort of do your thing, and then, um, you know, as things were dying, uh, you would just get life out of them, essentially. So, like, if you ever chump locked or a lot of times you could generate tokens and things. But anyway, uh, Diamond Valley definitely was one of the... Uh, was an interesting way to sort of help stay alive in a very cheap... And it was... Because it was a land, your opponent couldn't even counter it. I mean, other than destroying it, it was very hard to deal with, and... Um, other than decks that were about land destruction. People didn't tend to run a lot of land destruction unless they were about land destruction. Okay, drop of honey. Enchantment costs one green mana. During your upkeep, the creature in play with the lowest power is destroyed and cannot be regenerated. And then if there's a tie, you get to choose. So I I joke that uh, for some reason throughout the history of magic, there are a lot of Wasp Hornet bee-flavored cards that are out of flavor for green. I like to say this is the granddaddy. This is the beginning. This is the first bee-flavored theme card that uh, did something green is not supposed to do. Now, I admit, at the time it was made, uh, the color pie was a little looser in this one area. Uh, I think green was much more destructive, and um, it was later, as we sort of were refining things, we realized that green needed to have an offset to the fact that his creatures were just better that it just got more, got better creatures for the value. Next, Ebony Horse costs three, and then for, I think it's two, um, you remove one of your attacking creatures, and then it never attacks. So what it lets you do is, I get on my Ebony Horse and I attack, and then I go, oh, that's a bad attack. Yeah, yeah, this, this didn't attack. Um, this card was a precursor of a mechanic that would show up in Tempest Block. Uh, what was it called? It was on white cards, uh, that could pull themselves out of... uh, What's the name of that mechanic? It was a mechanic where you could attack it. It was this mechanic, but on individual cards. Like, I attack the creature. No, I don't. Um, And this allows you to do that with whatever whatever creature you wanted. Next is Elephant Graveyard. So you could tap to add one cullus mana to your mana pool, or you could regenerate an elephant or a mammoth. Um, And the reason it said mammoth, by the way, basically was because War Mammoth was a card in um, early magic... Uh, in alpha, and I think it was a mammoth and not an elephant. It might even be I think it might even be eroded now to be an elephant. Um, but anyway, elephant graveyard, I th- I think Rachel, this is a top-down card which was like, oh, I, let's make an elephant graveyard because that's f- flavorful and what would an elephant graveyard do? Well, apparently, help elephants. So, uh, although the thing I find funny about elephant graveyard is it keeps elephants out of the graveyard. Is that what an elephant graveyard does? Is it Next, El Hajjaj. So it is one black black for a 1 1 creature, and you gain one life for every point of damage El Hajjaj uh, inflicts, it says. I like that, inflicts. Um, there's some flavorful wording early, early on. So this is the very first, essentially, lifelink creature. So I know when we lifelink, um, uh, the lifelink became most popular, or there's a card in uh, Legends called uh, Spirit Link, um, and it was. Um, essentially it granted your creature something life-lifelink it was your creature, although if you put it on your opponent's creature, you still gain life- regardless of whose creature it was, so it wasn't exactly lifelink but um, for a long time that got people thinking of lifelink as being more of a white thing but it started in black, obviously lifelink is in white and black Um, it makes a lot of sense in black, because it it definitely feels like kind of a walking drain life that you're doing damage and sucking damage out of them Um, so this card was a little on the weak side, but it definitely introduced it introduced lifelink to the game Erg Raiders. Erg Raiders cost one and a black for a two-three creature, um, and if you don't attack with them, they do two damage to you at end of turn. Um, but they don't damage you the turn of your summons. So, when you can't... Basically, any turn you can attack with them, and you don't, they do two damage to you. Um, later on, um, w- once again, as we were refining things, we made... Um, for, a long, for a little... In the early game, both black and red kind of had this thing about how you you can't you kind of have to attack with these things and eventually to make a little differen- differentiation between them we made red the must attack color and black the can't block color, um, but anyway this is definitely like they like attacking but you know two three for one for one and a black is pretty good but oh we have to attack with them the funny thing about them is it doesn't actually keep you from blocking with them it just punishes you if they don't attack which is a little bit different next Ernum Jen. So Ernum is a um, one of the most famous cards from the set. So it's four it's like three and a green for a four or five creature. And during your upkeep, you have to choose one of your opponent's creatures, and that creature has um fourth walk. Um, until your next beginning of your next turn, I believe. Um, and so the idea is I for four mana get a four or five creature, but. I, give you a, I allow you to make one of your creatures unblockable. Now, the trick around this is, I have to have a forest for you to forest walk. So if I have sources of mana that aren't, that aren't forests, then I can play this card to get the benefit of it, and there's no real downside. Um, now, remember when this was made, there wasn't a lot of... Effect. In fact, when the card was made, there was no way. Um, both forest, Both dual lands and basic lands had land types on it. So the only way to get green mana when this card was first made was you had to give your, you, had, you had to accept the, the negative. But as time went on, as we started making other cards to produce green mana that weren't themselves for us, this card got a little bit better. Um, this card was actually almost won a pro tour, almost won the very first pro tour. Um, Bertrand Lestray was defeated by Michael LeCanto. And Bertrand Lestray's deck was what we called Earnham Armageddon, which was a green-white deck where you played big creatures, Earnham Jinn being one of them, and then you get Armageddon out and destroy all the land, and then your opponent couldn't do anything as you overran them with big green creatures. Um, but anyway, uh, so like I said, there was a Gin and a Freet theme throughout. There's a, a cycle of Gins and a cycle of Freet's throughout all five colors. Okay, next. Eye for an Eye. So it's uh, white, white for an instant. Um and the way it worked is for every damage they uh, every damage that was done to you let's see um so whenever a creature or spell does damage to you it does equal amount of damage to them so the flavor of eye for an eye is you hurt me I hurt you um yeah, this card a, a lot of the Knight cards would later show up um in the, the base of the core set eye for eye was in for a bunch of years um and uh, it definitely, one of the flavors here is that if white wanted to damage something, it had to be in response. Uh, that white sort of had to, like, you know, you've damaged me, then I damage you. And definitely, it's one of the things that, that we played more into the idea of white being the color that says, you know, I, you have to strike first, but once you strike, I will strike back. Okay, next, fish liver oil. Fish liver oil costs one in a blue, it's an OR enchant creature, and target creature, oh, sorry. It says target creature, but what it really means is enchanted creature gains island walk. Um, So you put it on a creature and then they have island walk. There was a lot of island walking early on. Uh, I think the flavor was a lot of the water-based creatures needed water to function, and so there just was a lot of island walk early on. Okay, flying carpet costs four mana. Uh, For two, you can give one of your creatures flying until end of turn, Um, but if that creature is destroyed, so too is the flying carpet. So this is Richard trying to Uh, top-down a flying carpet. So the idea is, I get a flying carpet, I can help a creature fly, oh, but if the creature's destroyed, then the carpet's destroyed. Um, So there are a bunch of cards that in, I think, 4th edition um, got some uh, errata that changed how they work. I think this card now works the way it worked in 4th edition, which is, I think it locks onto the creature. Like, I tap it, and the creature is flying as long as I leave this tap, I think think is how it works now. Not 100%. But I know this is one of those cards that functionally changed. We don't do that anymore, but um, we functionally changed it, then printed new cards, and there were more of the new cards than the old cards, so instead of changing it back, we just left it as it was, I believe. Flying Men. Flying Men cost one blue. They're a 1-1 flying creature. I had a deck uh, during the, the period during Legends when nobody played creatures. I played a weenie blue-green deck, and Flying Men were my deck. It's funny, for a long time, it was consider- this was considered too good. Then we made the card, and like, what are we doing? That's way too good, and we backed away from it. And now it's like, meh. You know, a blue one-one. It can have, some, it can have some other bonus. Okay, Gazban Ogre. Gosbond Ogre costs one green mana, and then during its controller's upkeep, the player with the highest life total takes control of it. So it goes whoever's ahead. So this card actually saw some turn in play. There was a period of time where there's a deck called Stompy, which was a mono green deck. There's a, a a very blisteringly fast mono green deck. And a Gasman Ogre played really well in that deck, because um, as long as I'm doing damage to you quick, this negative never going to apply. Uh, but every once in a while, it did, and it, it was actually pretty cool. Okay, Giant Tortoise. Giant Tortoise costs 1 in the blue. Um, it is a 1-1 creature, but when untapped, it gets plus 0, plus 3. So essentially, it's a 1-4 when untapped, and a 1-1. One, one. So it's a very good defensive creature, but not so good an attacking creature. Um... Not much else to say about the giant tortoise, other than it is a tortoise. At um, some point, we may, we try to figure out the difference between turtles and tortoises and stuff. Um, I think I think nowadays we just use turtle. In fact, this card probably is a eroded to a turtle, is my guess. Okay, next, Guardian Beast. Uh, three and a black for a two-four creature. Um, and as long as it's in play, I'm trying to remember how Guardian Beast works. Uh, this is one of those cards that has a, a lot of text on it. So it's particularly hard to, uh... Ah. Hold on one second. Uh, so Guardian Beast... Let's see if I can remember how this works. You pick an artifact when it comes into play, and I believe the way it works is as long as this is in play, um, you can't destroy the artifact. It protects the artifact. That The idea is it protects... Um, let's see. Uh, as long as it's on tap, uh, your non-creature artifact... Oh, non-creature... Uh, cannot be oh, I see it lists a whole bunch of things that can't be done to it can't be enchanted or destroyed or taken by someone else. Um, and so the idea is as long as this thing is in play and names that it protects it and you can't, you can't hurt it while it, it's in play. This card actually was played some because there's some very powerful artifacts and it was a good answer to people who were trying to destroy artifacts um, and so sometimes people would play this to protect things uh, it didn't get played tons, but it definitely was it was a popular card back in the day. Next, Hasbong Ogris um, is two black black. Ah, you can tell today my... Uh, uh, sometimes sometimes uh, it's hard to read some stuff. I, I write notes so I can see them. Um, so this card costs... Uh, it's a 3-2. I think it's one black black. Um, but you have to pay two each time it attacks or it does three damage to you. So, she doesn't like attacking. you gotta pay, you got to bribe her to attack. And if you bribe her to attack, then she will attack. Uh, and she's a 3-2 for 3 mana, which is pretty good. Um, and, uh... Is it 3 mana? 2 mana? Maybe it's just black-black. Maybe it's just black-black for a 3-2. Um, so, maybe... I, I, now that I think about the card, it must be black-black for a 3-2. So, it's black-black for a 3-2, but when you attack, with it, you have to spend 2, or else she does 3 damage to you. Note, by the way, what Richard did a lot of those. It's not that the Urg Raiders couldn't block. It's not that... Hassan Ogres couldn't attack. It was just, there was a cost to do it. You know, if you wanted her to attack, you had to pay him. If you wanted Raiders to block, essentially, you had to pay them. Um, And there's a cost to be paid. Her Jackal. So Her Jackal's a 1-1 for red. Um, And you could tap it to prevent target creature from regenerating. Our first Regeneration Hoser. Well, not take that back. Disintegrate probably was a Regeneration Hoser. Uh, Another Regeneration Hoser. So this card is interesting in that... um, One of the things that happened was this was a common card when when it was printed. And then um, we made the reserve list and said we would not print any of the uncommon or rare cards from this set. And so what happened was there were cards that later got reprinted, but because some of the common cards were so infrequent, um, we would print them at higher rarities. So Her Jackal is one of the few cards, not the only card though, that has been printed at both common and rare. Uh, It was common originally and it was rare in... I don't remember the corset, we brought it back in. Okay, next, If, Biff, of Freet, So two green green for a three, 3-3 three flying creature, um, and it had the ability that anybody could pay green mana to have it do one damage to each player in each flying creature. Uh, it made a little hurricane. So the idea is, it was a creature, a 3-3 three, three flying creature for four mana that allowed anybody to hurricane, yourself included, now, being that it was a flying creature, if, in, if three mana total was spent, it would destroy this creature. Um, so, If Biffafreet was definitely, um, was pretty powerful. Um, I'm to remember the, uh, is this the one? So, If Bif, uh, I'm trying to think which one had the, so one of the things that happened during, um, I guess it was, was it If Biffafreet, Yeah, so Serendip- uh there was a card in um, uh, was the third edition that uh, they were trying to print uh, one of the Afrittes um, uh, one of the blue Ifrit's, uh and in, uh, what, what was it was it serre I think it was a serredumfrit. and they accidentally put the frame for if on it. So this picture and the green frame were on that card. and so it was a very, very famous misprint. Um, I think the text was all correct for the serre um, but the, the visuals and, you know, the, uh, the card frame and the art was from free. If, if, if so anyway, that's a famous, famous misprint. Next, Island Fish Jesconus. So four blue, 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 um, for a, I think, eight, eight, six, eight, for a six-eight creature. And you had to pay blue, blue, blue during your upkeep, or you had to tap it. Uh, and it had an island home, which it said, um, you had to have islands in play or of Detroit, and you could only attack it if they had islands. Um, so, it's kind of funny that it took us a while. A lot of the creatures in Arabian Nights that were considered powerful creatures by today's standards are nothing special. But back then, creatures were pretty weak. And this is a good example. For like a 6-8, and you have to what? You have to pay all this mana, and then you have to, you know, have an upkeep every turn, and then you have to have Island Home. And like, this was a hard card to use effectively, and it was just not particularly powerful. Okay, next, we have Island of Walkwalk. Walk. There's another one, of the Powerful Lands. So you could tap it to reduce any flying creature's power to zero. Um, so this, uh, in tournaments, I think it was a sideboard card that it was a good answer to like dragons or um, you know Mah- Mahamori Jin or something. That if your opponent had a flying creature that's problematic, it's like you just bring this card in, it can't be countered, and it just essentially n- nullifies their biggest flying creature. Um, mostly sideboard because not all decks have flying creatures, but. Uh, uh, my favorite part about this is we we used to joke that when you make Land Walk, you could choose whatever Land Walk, like this Desert Walk in the set, because it can walk across deserts, uh, much like this Forest Walk or Mountain Walk. And so we kept wanting to make a card that could uh, give you Land Walk if your opponent had this card, which would call be called Island of Walk, Walk, Walk. Anyway, we, we thought that was funny. <laughs> Next is Jandor's Ring. So it costs six mana, and... I think it's two and discard a card you just drew um, and draw another card to replace it. So what it let you do is you would draw a card, look at it, and then you could choose to spend two and discard the card you just drew to drew it, draw a different card. So it allowed you essentially to pay a little bit of mana to reject a card and get a different one in its place. Jandor um, Saddleback, speaking of other Jandor, was an artifact that cost two. For three mana, you can untap a creature. So it could be your creature, be an opponent's creature, be a teammate's creature... Um, for three, you can untap a creature. Um, oh, and both, by the way, both Jandor's ring and Jandor saddlebags were mono artifacts, which meant that they tapped to use their ability. Um, keeps throwing, because I keep looking for the tap symbol, but m- a mono artifact didn't have a tap symbol, it just said mono artifact. So, everything else told you it tapped. There weren't tap, tap symbols yet, but it told you it tapped. And mono artifacts, you no, know, it's baked in the rules, you just had to know that it could, t- it could tap. Um, now, uh, both genders... I'm not sure about gender's in. Gender's saddlebag showed up in the core set, so there exist plenty of them that have a tap symbol on it. Okay, Jeweled Bird. So Jeweled Bird is one of the anti-cards. So remember, for those that didn't play early Magic, when you originally played Magic, under the rules of the game, and not, not alternate rules, the, the default rules originally, you drew seven cards, your eighth card was placed, I think, face up off to the side might have been face down. But anyway, if you lost the game, your opponent forever, forever, got that card. You get, It was like marbles. You would lose a card. Um, and that was a big part uh, when Richard first made the game. Now, part of the reason, by the way, that Ante was there um, was Richard believed that people were going to buy a lot less cards. It was one of the ways to sort of help change the environment that if me and my friends had a small number of cards, this would create flux in what was going on and how the decks would play. Um... So Jeweled Bird, you drew a card and you played it. So that made it uh, the very first cantrip, by the way. Um, so you exchange Jeweled Bird with your contribution to the ante. So the idea is what Jeweled Bird does is it says, okay, instead of losing the thing that you're going to lose if you, if you lose, you'll lose me instead. Um, and Jeweled Bird, the idea, the, the, the idea was that if you didn't want to lose the card that was your ante, you could exchange it and instead lose the Jeweled Bird. So Jeweled Bird is most famous... Probably in all of history, the most famous jewel bird was cast by Kai Buddha at the Cape Town Magic Invitational. We were playing a format called 250, and part of the scoring for it had to do with um, the value of each of the cards. And so, um, they were in the third game, and... Um, by swapping his his anti-card for the jeweled bird, no matter what, even if his opponent won, they couldn't match, because he had gotten ahead on value in the, the... Like, Kai won one game, and um, his opponent had won the other game, and by... jewel, Like, he jeweled bird for the win, was with, with the quote, which, which is like... Um, I will use Jewel Bird to exchange my card for Jewel Bird. Jewel Bird's value is low enough that even if you win the game, under the constraints of how this format's working, you can't win. And so by using Jewel, Jewel Bird, he won the Magic Invitational. So, okay. So I can tell since I got up to J, that I have a podcast or two left to go here. Um, but anyway, I'm at work. How do we have do on time today? Um, oh, today was a little longer day, a little extra traffic. So you got a little extra bonus time of, of me talking about Raymond Knight's. But I'm now parked in the parking space, so we know what that means. It's time to end my my drive to work. So instead of me talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So I'll talk to you guys next time about more Arabian Nights.